What's up? Welcome back to another episode of the Anonymous Investors Podcast. I am your host with the most, Lord Edge. And as always, I'm visited today by my wonderful co-host, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent, Robert. Yes, God himself has gone through a transition as of of the last episode that we had, where we had this full-on conversation with him, talking about transitioning and the whole process. He's decided to become Robert. Robert, what's going on on this fine Monday afternoon? What's going on, man? We also have a special guest in the building today. Goes by the name of DDT, not to be confused with the wrestling moves. You already know. Now, DDT is a very special friend of mine. He would have been on earlier, but he was very busy watching CNN Plus, so much so that I heard that he's even picked up a very good Chris Wallace Chris Wallace impression. DDT, what's up, man? Hey, Laura Edge. Uh, thank you for having me. And hi, Robert. Um, I'm very proud of you for your transition. If you need to talk about anything, feel free to message me privately. Yeah, folks, it's not every day you go from you up on that. (laughs) Yeah, folks, it's not uh, it's not every day that you go from being a deity to um, transitioning to like an average person named Robert. It's like a stereotypical fucking name. But there's a lot of shit going on in the world as usual. A lot of stuff to talk about, especially this week. Uh, A lot of Bitcoin news. All you fucking hodlers out there holding your Bitcoins, holding these nuts, motherfucker. You're going to love this shit, Robert. Take it away, my friend. Tell the world about Bitcoin and spread the fucking gospel, my man. Well, the Bitcoin narcissist, you know, he's been reading the news and has found out that uh, Fidelity, which is basically one of the two uh, largest investment companies, you got Fidelity and Vanguard, and they they have like uh, four to five trillion dollars in assets, and they're basically allowing people now to uh, trade Bitcoin in their four one four one k accounts and their routes which basically provides people with a lot of tax advantages. So for like an asset like Bitcoin, which is uh, very volatile and has the potential to um, appreciate a lot. Um, basically, like if you look at a Roth IRA, you pay your taxes up front and then you could take out the money uh, free tax clear when you retire. So for an asset that appreciates a lot, that provides a tremendous benefit. And then you look at the amount of co- uh, the amount of customers that Fidelity has, basically almost every employer as uh, fidelity for their uh, employee plans, their pension plans, whatever they whatever they have. Basically, they have fidelity sponsored them. So this is big for Bitcoin. There's going to be a lot of uh, capital coming into the Bitcoin networks, and you know this is huge. Now, like a few a few specifics of what's going on um, with this uh, basically change is I think they're going to allow people to only um, invest. Uh, 1% of their uh, portfolio into cryptocurrency at first uh, because there was a little bit of a pushback from the labor department. I don't know why there was pushback from the labor department, why they care so much about fidelity uh, providing people with options. Um, but yeah, there's, there's basically a growing interest from uh, many different sponsors. So we might see more capital being infused into Bitcoin in the future. It's interesting that you bring that up because from my knowledge, like another way to own Bitcoin through like a retirement vehicle, like an IRA, right? Or, or a 401k, not particularly a 401k beforehand, but with the IRA, you were able to own GBTC, right? But now gray, grayscale, they're going to get hit over the head because they're charging 2%, you know, basically for a paper Bitcoin. But now with this 401k, I'm assuming from what you're telling me, it's not only an option for the 401k, but I'm guessing there's some sort of like custodial aspect to it. So how do you think that's going to disrupt like that whole self-directed or like self- uh, purported like Bitcoin IRA market as well? Um, to some extent, yeah, I think it's going to disrupt the uh, GBDC and the other uh, basically Bitcoin trust because um, their fees for those trusts are 2%, like you said, uh, but basically Fidelity is going to be charging um, 0.9% to custody the Bitcoin. So there's still going to be somewhat of a fee to hold the Bitcoin in your retirement portfolio, um, but it's basically just going to have like a compression on fees. So I think a lot of these trusts are basically going to be forced to compress their fees and come down. And, you know, it's really putting pressure on the market. But, you know, until we see a uh, Bitcoin ETF, that's when we're going to see like real compression on these fees. And we're going to see the investor um, come out ahead. Yeah, and that has a lot to do with uh, Gary Gensler, right? The current uh, SEC chairman, if I'm not mistaken. He's kind of pushed back on the Bitcoin ETF. So we really only see um, a futures ETF, not a spot ETF. Is that correct? 
Yeah, exactly. There's only there's only futures ETF. He refuses to uh, basically approve a spot ETF, but there are spot ETFs in other countries like Canada and Australia, and you know, you know, other countries across the globe. But in the United States, there's no spot ETF for Bitcoin approved, and you have to basically invest if you're a um, financial institution. You have to basically invest through other means, through uh, basically miners that might hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet, through futures ETFs, through um, trust, etc. Because they have a capital requirement, they have like a specific capital requirements and such that they have to follow, so they they can't um, buy Bitcoin directly. Absolutely. And what do you think that means for the the bullish the bullish case for Bitcoin? Right. So, like, where do you see it going? Now, let's say that I don't know how many people have four hundred one ks with Fidelity. I'd imagine a lot. Right. They're pretty much the I second think I was reading, I think I was reading somewhere. There's like 40 million accounts, 40 million customer accounts. That is fucking ridiculous. 40 million accounts. Holy fucking shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, have, I have an individual brokerage with Fidelity. I park. Um, I have an individual in an individual brokerage with Fidelity. I park my um emergency fund in uh just I I think an S and P five hundred um index fund actually, just park it in there, and I'm hoping that I never have to spend that money ever because it's an emergency fund. But yes, I do have a Fidelity account, and I've never had a problem with them. Okay, so on that same note, like getting back to the 40 million uh, customers that have an, have an account with Fidelity, particularly like, let's just say, was that a retirement account figure or was that just like generally speaking, 40 million people? I think that was just a, a, like a retirement account figure. I think they have actually much more than that. That's not even like the full account basis that they have. That, ma- that makes sense because they do manage $4 trillion as you uh, alluded to before. But now let's say that- No, that's 4 trillion people- is, 4 trillion is what they like, they personally manage like they have like 10 trillion in, in customers assets so if you just look at like what they manage that's 4 trillion but they have 10 trillion in customers assets so like if they custody your your um stocks or whatever bitcoin etc like um ddt how he said he deposits money into there and then they he basically buys the S&P 500 like they have 10 trillion dollars of custody stocks and etfs and you know index funds etc Right. So now let's say 4 million Fidelity customers have one. And by the way, 1% Bitcoin allocation for the average person who's not really into the whole crypto space and is still kind of like dipping their feet into that space. I think it's perfectly fine. I think it's pretty reasonable. I even think I even would go as far as to say that like a 5% allocation is very reasonable too, because you're really like the the one or 5% difference in your overall portfolio. If that's not going to break you. And if it comes to the point where it is going to make or break you, you probably shouldn't be investing. Like that's fucking such a small, minute part of your portfolio. And I think that it's actually probably better than bonds because now you see interest rates going up, right? So the Fed says, as we spoke about last week, Jerome Powell kind of came out and he basically put all the cards on the table and said, hey, half half a, you know, a 50, 50 uh, basis point rate hike six times next or really this year. So, you know, you're really looking at a situation where interest rates are going to keep going up. Bond prices are going to come down. Obviously, they're inversely correlated. So now it's kind of putting pressure on alternative investments and people are exploring that avenue. And I think that um, ultimately, like this will definitely be bullish. But now if you had to try to quantify the price of Bitcoin, I don't really like doing this. But if you had to set a price target at some point in the future with this 1% um, cap, you know, of a fidelity sort of allocation in 401ks, like where do you where do you put Bitcoin's price? Like does this change? Obviously, this changes the value add perspective uh positively but like if you had to try to quantify what what amount would you uh, assign to that mr robert yeah i don't think you could necessarily um quantify the price based over this but if you look at um basically how they say oh one percent it's of your money in bitcoin's too risky i think it's actually uh more risky to not have one percent of your portfolio in, in uh in bitcoin because if you look at the uh, bull thesis say everything goes right everything goes correct and bitcoin becomes the uh global reserve currency of the world a one percent hedge to basically bitcoin becoming the global world reserve currency is not really that much if you look at the potential of it becoming a global reserve currency if it becomes a reserve currency of the world and everyone moves away from the dollar and people start using uh bitcoin as legal tender like el salvador and uh the central african republic of congo 
Um, you could see Bitcoin uh, move up because it's it's portalless. It provides people with uh, less transaction fees when they're transacting, and it provides a lot of benefits because you look at forex and how how many fees people have to pay each year moving their let's say they go on vacation or they have houses in uh, multiple countries across the world and how how much fees they're paying. If if you had a currency that could just be used in every single country in the world that has tremendous value, and if the if the bull thesis comes correct and you know the world shifts to this global reserve currency you could easily see um a million dollar bitcoin price but uh you might say like all oh, the probability that's low but you still have if you allocate a small percentage of it and the bull thesis comes correct then your returns are going to be astronomical so you should at least uh allocate a small percentage of portfolio to to this in case it turns out it's kind of like a uh, venture capital investing like you know you bet you take a long shot of, of a company, you know, hitting it in Silicon Valley and such. So what, what are your thoughts on like uh, either Lord Edge or DDT on like how you should allocate Bitcoin to your portfolio? Yeah, I think anywhere from one to 5% is perfectly reasonable. I love that you brought up as far as transactions um, through other countries. So some of the guys I used to work with way back in the day, uh, back when I was a kid, pretty much like um, they were all from like different countries and they came to uh, America as like first generation immigrants. So for them, they would save a shitload of money, right? Because if they're sending money back home, now they're not dealing with a company like TransUnion, which is charging an absorbent amount in fees to send that money back over. So something like Bitcoin makes, like you said, it it's, it's borderless currency. So they can easily transfer it from one wallet to another and transfer that money essentially um, through, you know, Bitcoin as a median of exchange to then be able to spend that money in their home country. So I love it. I think anywhere from one to 5% is totally reasonable. I think if you're um, very risky or, or you're very risk tolerant, I think even 10% is very reasonable as well. Uh, DDT, what are your thoughts about um, overall portfolio allocation towards Bitcoin and um, why you think it's important or not? I would definitely be on the it, it would be on the lower end. I don't think people are crazy for not putting anything in Bitcoin right now because at the end of the day, it, it really is a gamble. I mean, who knows in ten years, maybe maybe some new coins gonna come out that and Bitcoin's gonna be like a thing of the past. Like it's it's just like I, I don't know. I'm still not too much of a fan of it. I, I do have like some Bitcoin that I own. Just because it's like, I, I do think that in the, within the next five years it's going to go up, but who knows what's going to happen in the future? I'm I'm really skeptical behind cryptocurrency because when I was in high school, I owned um, I I owned some Bitcoin in high school. I sold as much of it as I could at the time, but there was still a balance left of it, and um, years later after bitcoin like you know skyrocketed to you know pretty much where it's at now i tried accessing that account and it probably would have had like you know between like 20 and 30 thousand dollars of bitcoin um to find out that like that money was stolen years ago it was with um mount gox a brokerage from japan that sold bitcoin and they went bankrupt and they only had like two it was it was like two bitcoins to pay all the victims that lost money from from basically all all those accounts being you know closed and the money being i don't know if it was stolen or just lost but like you it's such it's an unright it's unre, it's unregulated right now we don't know what's going to happen and all that money could very well be lost like recently i had a personal experience i have a coinbase account um in my Coinbase account, I was actually trying, I, I was trying to like almost day trade with just like cryptocurrency. It wasn't working out. So I told myself I'm done. I'm never messing around with cryptocurrency again, unless it's something that like I want to lose or something that I'm, I'd be willing to lose. So um, I took, I took out, I emptied all of my positions of cryptocurrency besides one where I was like heavily down in, and I, I just told myself, you know what, I'm just going to hold this for like, you know, a few years. And if I lose everything, whatever, um, but odds are it's, it's going to go up. It's, it's actually 
um, it's it's actually Filecoin I'm holding right now. So it went down so much where it's at the point where if it goes to zero, no big deal. But I'm hoping that um, the next time Bitcoin, you know, uh, like when when Bitcoin's pushing a hundred thousand or or seventy five thousand, and all the other coins go up with it, I'm hoping that Filecoin, you know, also goes up, and I'll probably sell it for still a loss, but better better than where it's at now. I still want to hold on to it. I, I get it. Totally. I totally get it because your perspective on it is that, you know, you had two really negative experiences. And by the way, you're like a super OG like Bitcoiner having bought Bitcoin in like, what is it like 2013? And then you lost it in the Mt. Gox hack. That's like the most iconic fucking hack ever in the crypto space. That was like the first major hack where people were like, oh, fuck, like this is legit, you know? And there's a lot of speculation as far as like who actually hacked the exchange and took the money. I, I call This is a bit conspiratorial, but I'm in the camp of people who think that uh, it actually was the gentleman who ran the exchange that took the money, the French gentleman who ran this exchange you know, the money just magically disappeared. There was no evidence of hacking whatsoever uh, when investigated upon by like federal authorities and any sort of um, international federal authorities. And I think that it was just a straight up like exit scam type of thing where people, you know, the um, I think his name is Mark Karpalis. I think that he allegedly took all the Bitcoin and just pieced the fuck out and, and just let the whole thing collapse and just fucked everyone over because at the time, again, very unregulated. But you mentioned a little bit about altcoins here and your position in altcoins. Robert, I know that you had some news that you wanted to talk about with altcoins and there was this sort of major revelation that's happened uh, within the past week. So feel free to talk about that, man. I'd love to hear well, what you got to say about that. Well, before we move on to altcoins, I just wanted to make uh, one point. Like I, I understand um, that you had like some negative experiences with Bitcoin, but um, there's like there's basically by uh, if you own Bitcoin, you're basically like custodying the Bitcoin. You you're the bank, so you have to look at um, what what you could have done differently to basically prevent these hacks and prevent people from getting your coin. Instead of keeping the uh, the Bitcoin in uh, Coinbase, you could have moved it to like a uh, cold storage wallet, um, and then you Absolutely. could have like put the uh, password on a piece of paper or something like that. Um, you could, people people like to say, oh, you should have SMS authentication turned on. You definitely should not have SMS authentication turned on for Bitcoin because people can hack into SIM cards and they could basically reroute the um, two-factor authentication code to your account and, and get in that way. So you should actually turn off SMS authentication in this case. People think SMS authentication is actually more secure. It's probably less secure. Um, Basically, and you should also like, you know, instead of keeping, say you had $50,000 in Bitcoin and putting it on one wallet, maybe you should separate it into 20 different wallets, you know, and have all different public keys. Like if you go to the bank, they don't keep the whole entire bank's net worth on one, one wallet. They, you know, they ship it off to their federal reserve, which is like highly protected or whatever. So you should like diversify um, the wallets in which you keep your coins. And then, uh, you know, don't answer like any emails or anything like that where, where they say, oh, you know, reset your password, reset your password. That's probably like a phishing uh, like attack. So there, I think there are like some ways you can protect yourself against Bitcoin. But like, you know, I totally completely understand why um, you would be hesitant towards uh, investing in Bitcoin with the with the scams that um, happened because it's like these scams do do shape people's perspectives on things. And, you know, I think it's a shame that. You have all these like distrustworthy individuals participating in these scams. Yeah, there are a lot of bad actors in the space, um, particularly with like some of these exchanges. They're fucking super shady. Like I said in the past, and you know, this is just my opinion. Um, any company that doesn't have a bit license, I wouldn't even bother um, doing any business with. Like New York and London are the two most heavily regulated uh, financial markets in the world. So anyone who really gets like that stamp and seal of approval, like they're pretty much good to go. Not that they're without fault, but they're pretty much good to go. Now, as far as what Robert was saying um, about storing things with cold storage, I love his idea. Like you have 50,000 in Bitcoin. Great. Go get 20 wallets. Totally agree. You could get a very good cold storage wallet for anywhere from a hundred to like $200. And that's nothing to spend in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about safeguarding and protecting uh, anywhere from a couple thousand dollars in Bitcoin to tens of thousands of dollars in Bitcoin. And then once you factor in future earnings growth and that sort of CAGR of 
compounded annual growth rate, for those of you who don't know, of over 40% a year, you're talking about, you know, spending maybe, maybe $1,000, $2,000 to safeguard the earnings of potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions over the course of time. So very interesting. And, and Robert, you also made a point to mention earlier about the value proposition of Bitcoin. And as I alluded to earlier in some of the earlier episodes we've done, uh, I, I made it a point to say that if Bitcoin reaches the market cap of gold, which is around nine to 10 trillion, each individual coin is worth, I believe, $428,000 a coin. So that's a very good value proposition considering where we're trading at now in that sort of it seems like we're stuck in this sort of limbo of like the forty, fifty thousand dollar range. So you're looking at potentially ten x from there, which is phenomenal. That's a great return, and that could very well happen within the next five to ten years. You also have like a a multi sig wallet where you could have like multiple different beneficiaries like have to sign off on a transaction. So say you were like kidnapped or like being robbed or something like that, and the person like had a gun to your head and said, "Oh, I want all your Bitcoin. Give me all the Bitcoin." Like you could have you basically have five people be forced to sign off on transactions. So there would be no way, even if you wanted to give them the Bitcoin, you couldn't give them the Bitcoin because you would have to have multiple, multiple people sign off on the transaction. And they're also, this is going to sound like pretty weird, but they're also developing um, these wallets where you have to basically present them with a blood, uh, a blood verification or a DNA strand to basically get access to your uh, cold storage of Bitcoin. So like there's, there's, uh, protection measures being produced uh rapidly and it's like a new and growing industry and you know they, they do need a lot to do a lot of work on protecting uh the consumer because the more and more people get scammed the more and more people are going to be uh moving away from the uh, industry but yeah um so there was this old coin uh zcash it's basically was like invented in uh i think 2016 17 somewhere around there and you know they they just found out that actually the uh, developer of this of this uh, cryptocurrency Zcash. Well, let me go into like basically what it is. What's the purpose of Zcash? So like you know how Bitcoin is a uh, cryptocurrency, and you know you see the uh, transactions on the blockchain, and you can track it and go all around. But basically, Zcash is a privacy coin where it's meant to basically hide transactions and you know make uh, transactions. Uh, unseen where you can't see the money moving around and you can't follow the uh transactions which present which presents a uh a great deal of uh protection to like say money launderers and criminals etc so it basically like hides your public keys and they just found out that actually uh edward snowden the uh spy uh from uh the c the c the i the a uh basically uh was actually the inventor of this coin zcash and there's speculation that basically uh, he was basically hired by the Russian government to actually uh, develop this uh, coin. And it's it's a way there. It's the uh, cryptocurrency they're using to invade sanctions right now. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are on. Do you think they're using this cryptocurrency to evade sanctions? Uh, and do you think that uh, they even this is even like uh, available to them and they're able to use it to do that? As far as people using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions, I feel like that will always happen. But you know what else people use to evade sanctions? The U.S. dollar. Like people don't understand that. If you look at the U.S. dollar and like the amount of money that is used for illicit and illegal activity, it's like a mind boggling amount. Like the, the most commonly counterfeited money in the world are the U.S. dollars. And like makes sense. It's the most widely accepted. But at the same time, like it all Z comes cash. from North Korea. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the whole thing is that even the, if anything, crypto creates an atmosphere that very much favors the watchdogs, right? Because everything goes on the blockchain, assuming you're using a coin that logs everything on a blockchain, which is perfect in Bitcoin's case, because everything is very traceable. Like we established this before in episodes way, way back, we were talking a lot about Bitcoin the blockchain's immutable, nothing changes, everything's there forever, right? So assuming that that's the case, it's very easy to catch people laundering money. It's very easy to catch illicit transactions once you figure out the wallet identity, which obviously is encrypted, but it doesn't really take a fucking mathematician to figure shit out, especially if you figure out 
the address of one wallet, you can kind of triangulate and figure out the address of other, other wallets, assuming they're conducting business together on a regular basis. So DDT, I heard that you were saying that this theory is very probable. I'd love to hear what you have to say more about this. I could totally see Edward Snowden making this to like use as leverage with Russia right now. Um, and I could definitely see why Russia would want a coin like this to you know avoid sanctions like robert was saying so i could definitely see you know robert's you know theory about you know edward snowden making this coin i could see why he would do it because he's getting on russia's good side and i could also see why russia would want edward snowden to make the coin because like he was saying um it could help them get around sanctions right now and um even without talking about sanctions you know you don't have to look too hard to find reasons why people want to be shady with how they're moving money around so especially Absolutely. like a country like russia yeah yeah i think i think even even without sanctions say like you know they might just want to uh hide certain things they're doing like they, they might not want other countries to know they're trading with north korea they might not want to know they might not want other countries to know what they're doing in africa they might not want other countries to know what they're doing in uh various places in the world so it kind of gives them a level of privacy even before the sanctions were basically implemented that they can uh, use to help help and uh, benefit them i um kind of have a question for you guys i, I saw on the news that um they were saying that putin's doing his best to keep the russian ruble up right now um did you guys hear about that have any comments on it do you maybe know what putin's doing to keep the ruble up right now yeah so um i heard one thing that he was doing to keep the ruble up basically oil is a uh, massive i mean russia is an, a massive exporter of oil and you know europe is basically beholden to russia for their energy sources and their oil etc because they shut down their nuclear power plants like the morons that they are uh calling out germany in particular and uh, he's basically forcing these countries to settle these oil transactions in rubles, which is basically going to prop up the rule because there's a massive amount of oil being exported from Russia each and every day. I think it makes up like over 20 percent of their economy. I, I think he actually raised the interest rates of the ruble. So, you know, if you have a high interest rate, you're incentivized to keep the currency and not switch to an alternate currency because you're getting you know, a good return on your investment in that sense. So I, that's one other thing that I heard. I, I can't think of anything else. Yeah, guys, I just made, did a quick Google search and I saw an article from Bloomberg um, saying that Russia might want to peg the ruble um, against gold, actually. So. That's interesting and that definitely makes sense. I mean, uh, pegging a currency to a commodity, especially if you're highly uh, a highly sanctioned country, um, totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, gold has you know a massive amount of value. It's been uh, stored and traded for uh, tens of thousands of years, if not more. And you know, it provides a great deal of stability in their uh, volatile currency uh, markets they're in right now. Yeah, P Peter Schiff is busting a nut in his fucking pants right now after hearing that. <laughs> Peter Schiff, the gold man himself, Mister Gold, he's fucking he's fucking busting a nut. <laughs> <laughs> all right anyway on that same topic of institutional investors hey, a lot do, you think, of do, you even, do you even think they're able to like get enough gold to peg their their um ruble to gold like where where would they be even getting all this gold when they're sanctioned oh gee i don't know uh maybe one of their trade partners that didn't sanction them hmm. china <clears throat> china china oh i don't know who said that come on man i got a cough i don't know what's going on tonight <clears throat> My throat's acting up. Let me get a swig of water. Uh, anyway, on that same topic of institutional investors and, uh, you know, having aforementioned Peter Schiff, there's a lot of shit going on, particularly with Melvin Capital. You may remember them. I don't know if you boys remember, but Melvin Capital took a fucking ass whooping by Main Street through the Wall Street bet apes, my mans, from Reddit. So here we go. Melvin, this is per Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal. Melvin Capital clients are down 52% or roughly $6.8 since January of 2021 through this past March. Melvin Capital Management has responded by restructuring, which is hilarious. Wall Street bet apes are crushing Melvin on their short position regarding GameStop. 
So Melvin Capital's response to all this shit that was going on with GameStop is to cut their assets under management from $12 billion down to $5 billion. Gabe Plotkin came out and he said that they're going to continue to look for short positions. Big fucking mistake, if you ask me. Yeah, let's keep doing the activity that just ravaged half of our assets under management. Yeah, that's a bright idea, asshole. I mean, really, holy shit. That's like saying, oh, we have a we have a um, yeah, we have a giant hole in our boat. Let's just make a bigger hole in the fucking boat. Yeah, that'll that'll stop it from sinking, fucking moron. Sorry, I'm interjecting with my opinion here, but this guy's a shithead. Uh, so starting January 1st, they have plans to charge incentive fees ranging from 15 to 25%, down from initial performance fees of 20%, the industry standard, 2 and 20, as we know. Uh, so down from previous performance fees of 20% to 30% before reverting back to before reverting back to its original high fee structure on January 1st, 2025. So through January 2025, they're going to have lower fees from 15 to 25% down from 20 to 30. Citadel has also come out and they clawed back $2 billion they invested in Melvin Capital. So from 2014 to 2020, Melvin averaged 30% a year after fees, which is pretty good. But in my opinion, those days are long fucking gone. So now 0.72 in Citadel struck a weird revenue share with Melvin where they're entitled to three years of earnings, which is interesting because now they're pulling back capital. So they're still going to share in revenue, which is kind of nuts. I would think that the revenue share would be contingent upon capital, but nonetheless, these guys are sharks and Plotkin uh, is just a bozo, you know? So here's my question that I have for you, Robert, because I know you're very well versed in this. You were sort of one of the apes that was caught in the mess of this. Is it safe to assume that retail activist investing is here to stay? Or was the GameStop short, short squeeze a black swan event where Main Street just ganged up on Wall Street? Yeah, I, I actually, uh, that's actually a false statement. I actually never owned AMC or GameStop and uh, never will. Uh, I think it's massively overvalued and such. But uh, this guy, Gabe uh, Plokin, you, you know why he returned the money, right? Because when you have a hedge fund, et cetera, and such like that, you ha you have to basically make your investors whole first before getting any carry or any um 2% uh, transaction fees. So by returning the money and then starting another hedge fund, he starts from scratch and he doesn't have to make up the massive losses that he uh, ensued in the GameStop saga. So basically he's like saying, oh, I'm shutting down my hedge fund, I'm shutting down my hedge fund. But then he's basically opening up another hedge fund 30 seconds later. So he's doing it basically so that he doesn't have to make all this money back before he, he gets his fees. So he's just a, basically a scumbag and an asshole. He steals from all these people. He makes the massive losses. Then he just raises money again and starts another hedge fund and then collects his fees. He's one of the worst people in the world. He's a total fucking scumbag, total asshole. And he's going to hell. All right. So on that same note, here's a fucking interesting conspiracy theory I have for you about Gabe Plotkin and, and the shitbag he is. So Plotkin, for those of you who don't know, he was a star portfolio manager for SAC Capital, which is Steve Cohen's old hedge fund that was shut down by the SEC for insider trading. Now, I might be going out on a limb by saying this, but... Is it entirely possible that Gabe Plotkin's Melvin Capital is being used as an arm to allegedly engage in the same activity that was conducted by SAC Capital before its shutdown? Robert, I want your thoughts on this. This is a spicy, spicy question, and I love a spicy answer here. Well, I mean, of course he was. You know, if you look at the uh, payment for order flow that was going on between uh, Robin Hood. And uh, Melvin Capital, you look at the connections of Stevie, Stephen Cohen with uh, Melvin Capital. Basically, they make up a large percentage of the uh, broker dealers that basically uh, you know facilitate the transactions. And they definitely 100% shut down uh, the stock of GameStop to basically uh, curb the uh, buy pressure. And uh, you know, I don't know if I necessarily blame them. Because, you know, the whole financial system as a whole probably would have collapsed. It, you know, GameStop would keep running up. And I think a way we could actually solve this is if we uh, we move settlement times to, like, a shorter period of time. And we have, like, the same-day settlement or one-day settlement times to, you know, lower the risk, lower the uh, capital requirements that are needed in order to uh, facilitate the transaction.
Yeah, right now settlement times are uh, T plus two, which is um, the transaction day plus two. So, and then for options, it's um, T plus one on a on a on a uh, on a buy, and then T plus two on exercise of options. So, it's very interesting to see that. And I'm glad you brought up some of the market manipulation and some of the other bullshit that was going on because um, Citadel is not innocent in this whole ordeal. How is Citadel as a market maker able to own quite a big, you know, really a beneficiary owner stake in Robinhood? Like, what the fuck? They're clearly just jumping the pile here and they're just route, like you said, with the order flow. They're just, they're seeing major buy blocks come in for any particular stock or equity in general. And then they're just buying ahead of the pile. They're buying before trades are processed. How is it? I don't even understand how that doesn't violate securities law. How can you be a market maker and then own a fucking brokerage like hedge, like um, Robinhood? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Fucking bananas. And there's there's literally like I think there's like maybe five uh, like brokers that basically facilitate the trades for Robinhood. It's like uh, Citadel. And then it's like Wolf something capital, Saswaka. There's like literally five firms. So it's not out of the like realm of reasoning that these five firms would just get together and, and you know talk to one another and basically have access to all these trades. Like it's totally not out of it's literally five people coming together to discuss what's going on. And Robinhood makes up a, a large percentage of trade activity for retail investors. Absolutely. DDT, what do you got to add on that? I know that you were kind of keeping up with that whole saga. And by the way, Robert, before I don't really appreciate that slanderous remark you made, I wasn't saying that you actively traded. I said that you were one of the apes who came out in support of it like myself. I didn't own any shares in GameStop myself. I did own one share in AMC and Robert actually took it upon himself to kind of go after me and attack me for buying AMC at $13 a share. And you know what? I'm happy I fucking bought that share because I basically bought it it well, was you bought symbolic. it at like 50, but we'll, we'll, we'll no, I bought it at, I did buy it at 13 and then I actually sold it like at like seven. But my whole point, <laughs> my whole point in buying the one share was to buy it in support of my eight brethren. You know, I got to come out and support. But anyway, DDT, I know that you were keeping up with this whole madness that was going on as it was unfolding. So what are your thoughts on this whole situation? And um, is there anything you want to share as far as uh, anything with uh, Steve Cohen or Citadel or Robin Hood in general? Like, do you think that there should be more regulation stopping uh, institutions from doing this? Like, what are your thoughts? I say let the market do its thing. And I'm for regulations if it's truly what the people want. Um, you know, right now I'm kind of against nearly every regulation because I don't have trust in, trust in the government right now, which is kind of important. But... Um, you know, long term, just let the free markets do its thing. We're not going to, you know, let um, certain institutions not own brokerage firms just because they have other investments and other things. Let the markets do it, do its thing and hope that, um, you know, the regulations actually reflect what the people want and, you know, are set up in ways to protect them, not just, you know, special interests of the people who create the regulations. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. You know, if you just you know make sure the regulations are, are good and intact, because you you don't want to basically uh, impose your will on on a person and you know prevent them from accessing the free markets and like you know basically censoring them from the free markets. That that's not uh, American. That's pretty un-American. So you know, if you could regulate this and like basically protect the people and and stop this uh, collusion kind of activity from happening, that's probably the best case scenario. I would like one hundred percent agree with you. What you said. Absolutely. And on that same note of market manipulation, there was a lot of stuff also going on in the news, not pertaining particularly to Melvin Capital. But we did see that. I don't know if you guys remember this. Archegos. Archegos just fucking imploded uh, March of 2021. So now the SEC has come out and they indicted Bill Hang from Archegos as well as his CFO. And they are alleging that. Well, actually, I'll give you a little bit of some background here. So Bill Hang of Archegos, he's uh, actually a tiger cub. So he was one of the premier traders and portfolio managers for Julian Robertson at Tiger Management, very well known in that hedge fund industry, very prestigious. So he, he was charged by the SEC with market manipulation after the 2021 Archegos meltdown. 
So in March of 2021, Arkegos lost $20 billion in 10 days, resulting in giant losses for Credit Suisse, Numira, for those of you who don't know, UBS, uh, and I believe Morgan Stanley as well. So prosecutors from the SEC are alleging that Bill Huang and his CFO had deliberately misled banks to borrow money and place enormous bets through sophisticated investments. If you ask me, I think they use swaps. That's how they were able to create such a large leverage position without much of a footprint. So the SEC in their own literature, they go on to say that the trades were then obfuscated by the loose regulations governing so-called family offices like Arkegos, which wealthy investors use to manage their investments. It's interesting to see what's going on with Arkegos now. So the SEC also goes on to say that they believe that hedge funds and family offices should face more regulatory oversight because initially now they do not use money provided by outside investors like pension fund foundations and other wealthy investors and they claim that Arkegos's reckless behavior puts investors of cbs viacom and discovery at risk so now to me this begs the question should hedge funds and family offices be subject to more federal regulations given the impact that they have on financial markets through use of excess leverage robert um, what do you think I can see where um, you can make a point where they maybe they should regulate it, but how are you going to regulate somebody's private money where it's not they're not taking investors' money? They don't have any uh, kind of fiduciary duty. How could you go in and control what somebody does with their own money and basically say you're not allowed to do that? Now they could basically you know have stricter uh, borrowing requirements, basically borrowing on margin, and you know limit them to. Uh, basically only taking risky bets with their own money and not not having stricter uh basically having stricter borrowing requirements for these firms and you know requiring uh maybe audits if they want to maybe banks should have stricter policy and you know that that comes in at the federal level the federal reserve and such have to step in and you know regulate uh these banks and tell them uh what they can and cannot do in regards to bar uh, borrowing and lending to these uh financial firms. DDT, any thoughts? Uh, none that comes to mind. Yeah, I think that the excess use of leverage, I mean, honestly, when you look at this guy, this guy had all this prestige. And to be completely honest with you, I think he just lost his fucking mind. Like, I think he was just trying to speed run Wall Street bets. <laughs> It's just what it seems like. You, you know how the people on Wall Street bets, they just commonly post. It's like, oh, I just oh, lost I think, half a million dollars. Like this guy I just literally tried to speed run it. 20 billion in 10 fucking days. What the fuck? You know what I think it is? I think it's like a cultural thing because if you look at like uh, Masa, who runs that uh, big fund in Japan, I forget the name of it. Uh, whatever. He runs like this uh, big- SoftBank, uh, is that it? Yeah, SoftBank. He runs SoftBank. Like- it seems like like the Japanese people they they're like more risky in their investments, in in some sense. Yeah, so you're talking about uh, I think it's Ma Masayoshi that runs SoftBank. It's very interesting, yeah, because his fund inherently is pretty much designed around tech and more risky investments. And the same thing with Bill Wang. But at the same time, when you look at the historical trends of the Japanese economy and what the average Japanese person did, they're particularly not too keen on taking risk, right? Like that whole thing was that Japan was stuck in a recession for so fucking long because the culture was like, oh, no, save your money, save your money. Don't spend anything. Don't like it almost was like they were afraid to cross the fucking street. Like that's how risk averse that, you know, they were. So it's interesting that you have some sort of outliers where they're just like, fuck it, YOLO. And it's like almost like this complete sort of um, reactionary side of the spectrum where it just creates a dichotomy. Because like I said, you have the average person in Japan for the longest time. This was the historical norm of like being afraid to invest and being very risk averse. And oh, my God, like, you know, oh, don't do that. Like you could lose money. Like, oh, no. And then you have people going like, haha, fuck it, YOLO. Let's buy Tesla. Let's buy Tesla puts and lose our shirt. Like it's just hilarious to me. And it doesn't make any fucking remote sense. Like, I don't know. It, it's like almost the whole thing of like Hegelian dialectics where like one thing will swing 
the pendulum will swing from one extreme to the other before eventually finding some sort of midway and you know in between the two extremes and it just seems like that whole Archegos thing and then particularly with Masayoshi at SoftBank is like the complete opposite extreme of what the cultural norm was for the longest time yeah if you look at uh Bill Wang when he was doing he was taking basically like these highly concentrated uh bets and he was like basically ha taking like swap positions on them but uh this this raises like a bigger question and you know something to like ask yourself is this is not these people that are managing these like financial firms and come it's not their money and they're getting um fees off of basically managing this money so they're incentivized to basically take more and more risky bets even if there's a higher chance of failure since they're getting 20 percent of the returns and they don't really truly have any of their money at stake so you know maybe there should be some regulation in regards to uh a percentage of your network if you're running like a financial company a hedge fund or a private equity firm etc maybe there should be some requirement to how much of your network you physically have to put in the firm so if you lose uh your investors money you actually lose your own money as well and you know i was wondering what you guys would think about a uh, potential regulation in this regard i really like what you just said there you know make the people who run these funds um you know have a stake in it a real stake not just you know a million dollars for a guy who's worth 500 million but you know percentage wise something pretty significant um you know to make sure that you know their what's good for them is in line with what's good for you know clients um one thing i do want to say is robert earlier on made a statement um you know talking about how people in japan are um you know more willing to invest in risky investments and i just want to say that as a transracial japanese man i do take offense to that and i'll be expecting an apology letter tomorrow i'll make sure to uh, mail it to your blues clues mailbox and you know i'll give me the address to your blues clues mailbox and mail it right over you little soft guy did you ever see that meme where he's like, it's, uh, I think it's Steve from Blue's Coast where he's like, we just got a letter. We just got a letter. And he's singing. That's going to be, it's like, that's going to be who it's from. And then it's a girl that's just like, fuck you. And like flipping the camera off. That's going to be Robert's letter to DDT. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. I, no, I totally, I totally understand what you're saying. And, you know, I'm very respectful towards the, uh, trans uh i guess gender you can call it even though there's only two genders but i guess you can call it i'm very you, you should call it trans, trans no 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 transracial i said nothing about gender why are you assuming that oh i'm sorry i assumed your gender so there's been a lot of weird woke shit going on we saw disney went woke right we saw a few of these other companies go woke and we're kind of like uh what victoria's secret on? went woke yes victoria's secret you may know them as the very popular women's uh, lingerie company, and they have very they have their fashion show, and I don't know what they're doing with that. But there's been a lot of woke shit. No, no fashion show anymore. They're moving towards the fat population. They want to. Oh, they have plus sized models. Okay, that's good. So they actually have a demographic that they're serving, and that demographic is called beached whales. Okay, yeah, that's, that's very good. NW plus. Wait, what would you say, DDT? S, I said SSBBW plus super size, big, beautiful woman plus. That's what they're focused on. I like that. I, I can respect that, you know. S, what S, whatever word you just said, yeah. What is that but, like? Uh, a, what is that like a porn <laughs> category? What the fuck? I guess it is. That's. <laughs> They're, they're basically supporting like a girl that's just like 500 pounds. That's like one fucking Mick Flurry away from like her fifth heart attack. Like, that's just what it sounds like. I'm not even trying to Robert, be mean. Holy fuck. Robert, you, you mentioned that Victoria's Secret doesn't have the their whatever famous show anymore. Um, yeah, the fashion show. That was like the highlight of their whole company pretty much. Did they, did they get rid of that or did they only replace it with plus size models or something? I'll, either or, as far as I'm concerned, they got rid of it. Even if they, you know, replace it, but that's basically getting rid of it. <laughs> but uh, they basically, yeah, they, they basically became a woke company and they basically just tanked their own, their whole company with, with what they did. Their whole like value proposition was like, oh, look at us. If you buy our whatever, you know, you're basically like an attractive person. And, you know, that fed into why people would go there and, and shop for that, that kind of clothing. 
now you have these fat cells, you know, you're basically supporting obesity, which is a huge problem in the United States. The obesity, you know, population is basically like 42 and a half percent. And you're, you're, you're basically subconsciously uh, driving down the demand for the product because did, people don't feel as good when they go there and, and buy your product because you're supporting fat cells. What were you saying before about um, Victoria's Secret selling their products at like wholesale prices online? I, I haven't heard about that, but I do recall you mentioning that. Well, yeah, because they they went broke. And they, I mean, they went because they went woke and nobody's buying their products anymore. And they had a massive uh, oh, demand okay. crunch. They basically now have to go on Amazon and, and sell their products for much cheaper. See, I was, see level. I was taking it differently. I thought that they were going woke by just giving away their products for free because liberal companies are crazy like that you know nothing nothing would surprise me that's what i thought you were you were talking about with the wholesale prices but um yeah that makes sense nobody wants to buy their products people they're advocating for obesity um you know you, you see beautiful women going into victoria's secret <laughs> you know maybe, maybe there's some other stores for those ssbbws that better suit them but um it's it, it was like when gillette went after men you know, it's like Victoria's Secret going after beautiful women. <laughs> it makes it makes no sense to me. You know, I'm I'm really not a Republican guy. I'm not really a right leaning guy. I'm more of a moderate. So I kind of look at this shit and I can't help but laugh. Like Victoria's Secret, their entire fucking business model is just appealing to like the vanity of women and kind of just saying like, look at our you know billboards or advertisements outside of the store. Like, look at these like smoking hot fucking chicks. And it's like, they're like a size like one or like a size zero. And then they just, you know, like they're just like super attractive. Like that, that's their whole allure of the store. Like that's the whole point, you know. It's just so weird that they're sort of like moving towards incorporating people who aren't their like main demographic. And so much so that they're like bending over backwards to like let these people in but like as a business it's their right to not you know target that demographic right like being see the thing is that this is my problem and i know some people are gonna have some pushback here probably no one in in our uh podcast but i know some of the listeners might have some pushback and i just want to say that um if you're offended by anything i'm about to say um you can unsubscribe you can fucking you know write a nasty email you can do what you want it doesn't really matter just know your that one view um, doesn't mean anything. It's not going to affect our C CPM. Your one view means absolutely yeah, nothing. Yeah, it literally, it literally doesn't matter if you're bothered by it. Like, just know that you're a fucking pussy, and um, your mother should is ashamed of you. Just know that. But um, your my main point, <laughs> your mom's a hoe, like the meme. But um, no, my main point is that like being fat is not a fucking disability. Like, I don't give a fuck what anyone says. I had a conversation with someone earlier today about this. And I was just kind of like, okay, like if you're fucking fat, like, and you're on an airplane and you need like an air, like a, a seatbelt extender, like you should just not be allowed to be on the fucking airplane because let's be real here. Like fat, being fat is not a disability. It just means you're fucking lazy. And there are a lot of people who sadly, like they're genetically predisposed to putting on more weight than others. Like, and for those people, I genuinely feel for them. But at the same time, it's just like, dude, like if you're like 300 pounds or like 400 pounds, like you know, you need to like cut back a little, you need to exercise every day. And like, I really don't feel bad for you. Like, if you think that I'm going to feel bad for you, like someone that's like mentally or like physically fucking handicapped to the point where they can't live their life like a normal person, like you're fucking, you're like beyond saving. Like you're just a fucking moron because at any moment, if you're fat, you could just put down the fucking Twinkie or put down the fucking Doritos and like walk on a treadmill for like 10 minutes a day and then take like a fucking 10 minute long steamy sweaty shit and lose like 10 pounds because you're fucking fat as fuck so there's no fucking it's not even remotely comparable to a person that's confined to a wheelchair or a person that has some sort of cognitive dissonance or like any sort of cognitive um disability it's not even remotely fucking comparable compare that to a person who has no fucking legs that like can't fucking walk that's a real disability like you can't fucking walk or run that fucking blows dick. Like if you're in a wheelchair, for, for anyone to be in a wheelchair and actually not be fat is fucking impressive to me because it's like, how the fuck is the person losing weight? Like, what are they walking on their hands on a fucking treadmill? Like, it's not going to happen. So it's it just these fucking fatsos, you know, they think we're going <laughs> to get up a laugh. These fucking fatsos, 
they think that we're going to accept them. And it's just, no, that's not the case. Like you clearly have something wrong and you need help. You know, well, you need help. You need to go to therapy and you need to fucking cut out on the Twinkies and get the fuck on the treadmill. You fat fucks. The thing is, right, you have all these movies, all these shows and everything. They basically, they're basically supporting and obesity and such. And Disney's doing it too. When you go to Disney and you go on a ride, right, they they basically have like a fat chair. You go on a roller coaster. It's like a the one thing I do like with Disney, what they do is though, they make the fat chair a different color than the rest of the chair. So they'll, they'll make like the fat chair like bright orange. So they kind of like fat shame you into like losing weight. I do like what they're doing in that regard. But, you know, they shouldn't even have a fat chair. DDT, do you have anything to share on uh, people who are fat as fuck and uh, need to lose weight? Um, yeah, I think it's a huge problem. You know, l l just in America alone, huge problem here. Uh, yeah, it's it shocks me that you know the government lets people use obesity as a way of you know not working, being a, a freeloader and whatnot there's a thousand different avenues that i'm sure people take millions of people take advantage of um just in that matter but uh, just generally speaking like just talking about society you know i don't want to say accepting you know obese people but like putting them on like a pedestal like this is what like this is beautiful like this like all that stuff like I, yeah i i am very against that uh it's a huge problem if if i you know you have to think it's like how would you if you guys had children like how would you raise your children you're not going to raise them to like my kids are not going to be big because it's really not that difficult to just live a healthy lifestyle um and it's it's like you eat what's in front of you if if you're if you realize hey i'm like, let's say you go to a doctor, your doctor says, hey, you're, you're, you really should be losing like 20 pounds or something, 20, 40 pounds. It's not good for your heart. It's not good for this, not good for that. And if you continue to go food shopping, you continue to buy the same stuff that gets, that's been getting you fat for 20, 40 years. I mean, it's, it's on you. It's on you. I think, you know, ob obesity should be treated like any other issue, like, you know, drug addiction, you know, uh, mental health issues, anything like that, where, you know, you should be accepting of people that have it, have the problem, but at the same time, you, you, you want those people to get help. They need help. It's just so strange to see that, you know, out of, you know, any addiction, like no other addiction would society tell you, oh, it's great that you have this addiction. Keep at it. Other than obesity. It's, it's just, it just, seems awful to me and it's it's one of those things where i can't even if it, it actually bothers me a lot where i'm where it's i'm at the point where i'm like you know everybody's free to live their life how they want to live their life and i'm just gonna live my life you know not in such a crazy way where i'm going to you know get to the point where i'm like you know 400 500 pounds Honestly, yeah. speaking speaking to this, I just want to make one comment. I've been, uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I've been working out. I just finished my 29th week in a row working out at a gym with my roommate who I live in who, you know, actually knows what he's doing in terms of working out. I'm doing all the muscle groups correctly, all that stuff. You know, I'm doing a pretty good job here. I realized today I was like, I was like, why the hell do I have a little bit of stomach fat on, on my stomach? I'm like, why the hell do I have this? I've been, I, I go on the treadmill every day. We do a lot of, we do a lot of cardio. We do cardio after every workout. And, you know, I've been doing it for like 29 weeks where it was like, you know, I had, you know, less stomach fat, like maybe 10 weeks ago. The reason is I've been eating Italian sausages every day which are incredibly, you know, fat filling. So like, to, you know, this was like two, three hours ago, I was Googling stuff. I was Googling how healthy is Italian sausages. And I saw articles all telling me like, it's full of fat, full of fat, full of fat, full of fat. Like, um, you know, this is, this is just something that normal people should do. If you realize that you're getting fat, you, you should, 
stop it. It's it's not it's not a good thing. Um, and uh, that's all I got to say. Absolutely, I kind of look at um, and and maybe um, no, honestly, I don't think I'm uh off off base with this at all. Um, I kind of look at being fat similarly to. Well, at least the government's position on being fat, apparently, from what I heard, uh, the federal government will actually grant you money for being fat. Like they kind of classify it as a disability, which is hilarious. So I don't I kind of look at that whole situation in the same scope that I look at abortion. So I don't really have a problem with uh, people going out and getting abortions um, within a reasonable time frame, like anything after like a fucking month or something, you're just a lazy motherfucker. But uh, I'm not against people getting abortions, but like, I don't think the government should be funding it. Just like I'm not against people kind of using their own free will and deciding to be fat, but it's just like, you shouldn't be able to get money from the government by claiming that it's a disability, especially if it's a self-imposed disability. What do you think about that, DDT? Do you think I'm off base with that? Or do you think that's, uh, I don't know, I guess like a valid point? I mean, uh, I think that, you know, government should never let people, you know, go hungry, starve, not have shelter. Like, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's got to, you know, have a place to live and have the basic necessities to live. Um, but I, the government makes it very easy for these people to, you know, collect on benefits relating to obesity or caused by their obesity, which, you know, the solution for many of these people could just be like changing their diet. Like it's, it's not like a real disability. It's just their, you know, absolutely. Their, yeah, it's their, self their own personal decisions. Yeah. It's self, it's absolutely self-imposed. And uh, like you were saying though, before about like uh, stomach fat, like they always say it's a common trope that um, abs are made in the kitchen. Like it's said all the time and it's so fucking true. Like I had, um, you know, I exercise every day. I try to do cardio every day, like an hour of cardio, not to get too into like my exercise routine. I try to do a car, uh, hour of cardio every day. Then I'll switch it up with either rowing or I'll do like compound lifts and stuff like that. But, um, as far as anything else is concerned, like, you know, if I have like a solid week or two where I eat really clean, I typically tend to lose weight and become more lean. Like, even like you were saying, like that abdomen region, like that stomach region, you could easily like lose some of that fat very quickly. I think a lot of problem with people, and I, I definitely would recommend this to anyone listening to this that, um, it, you know, is looking to lose weight. I highly recommend number one, you exercise, build up to that every day. Try just, just try to do, I'm not even kidding you get a gym membership. If you can, if you're lucky enough to be able to go out and buy a treadmill, buy a treadmill, you can get one on Amazon, one that folds up for like 300, $350, whatever the case may be, $400. If you can afford that, go for that. Whatever, whatever's going to work, whatever's going to get you to exercise. Some people like they need to go to the gym to get in that mindset. Me, I just hop right on the treadmill at home. I, you know, I don't give a fuck. Get up nice and early in the morning and and get on there. But whatever works for you, do that. And then every day, try to do like literally for the first week, try to do like two minutes of walking on the treadmill at like a four mile an hour pace or like a three mile an hour pace. And then from there, just like slowly build on it. Build up to like an hour and then get to the point where you start to run on there or whatever the case may be, whatever works for your situation. And then focus on trying to incorporate some other things. But like diet is most of the battle though. Like especially if you're out of shape and you want to be in better physical shape, diet is a lot of the battle. Like I would say diet is probably most of it. And then another thing you could do too is if you drink a lot of soft drinks or um, drinks that contain calories, just cut all those out entirely. Drink coffee is good. Coffee is very low calorie. If you drink it black, if you add milk, sugar, and creamer and all this other bullshit in there, it's, it's not healthy for you. Uh, too much excess artificial sugars, like been proven that it's a carcinogen. So you definitely should stay away from that. Um, and then anything else relating to that, I would say is really just black coffee or maybe add a little bit of milk isn't going to kill you. And then water. And, and possibly tea, and that'll help a lot. Like, you'll easily lose weight just from doing that. I remember at one point in time, I used to drink soft drinks quite a bit at one of my older jobs. And just from cutting out sugar and cutting out um, any sort of soda and, like, sugary beverage that contains calories, I easily lost, like, five pounds in, in like, two weeks without even trying. 
So, and that was before adjusting diet and then exercising. So it's very doable. Robert, do you have anything you'd like to share to people who are maybe a little bit overweight? Maybe they're obese. Maybe they're the size of a fucking house. Do you have anything you want to share to these people about um, motivating themselves to get out of the position they're currently in? I mean, not really. I think it's kind of self-explanatory, you know, go online, look up your height and, and your, your, uh, supposed weight and your calorie intake and don't go above the calorie intake that it says online and that's pretty much it no, you don't just keep eating like a fat cell and you know go to the gym i don't know three four times a week and you know everything will be okay and you won't be fat like i don't understand how these people get up to like six seven eight hundred pounds and don't even recognize the problem they have like tv shows on this like where you can't the guy can't even see his own fucking penis he's so fat like it's fucking ridiculous <laughs> yeah, my 800-pound life. That's a real show on uh, TLC. By the way, TLC, for those of you who don't know, that is the learning channel. Uh, so my 800-pound life, that was one that I watched, and it's like, oh, my God. It's like you literally can take a shit and lose, like, 30 pounds if you just, like, moderately watch what you eat for, like, an hour. It's crazy. I don't understand that people get that fat either. It's fucking the, weird. Those people that are big like that, like, there was the – the guy in remember the guy in Mexico that was like gigantic. He was one of the one of the I think it was the fattest guy in the world. He might I I, I don't know if he passed away already. I, I think he did. But um, you know how he got to be so fat was he had a, a woman living with him that was constantly making food for him and giving it to him and constantly just like he could not leave his bed. He he had to be handed like hand fed pretty much all the time and he was eating like 24 7 so like um nowadays with like grubhub and stuff like that it's dangerous it's 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 dangerous for these big people out there like they could get the food like delivered straight to their house they don't even have to go to the door when the doorbell rings people leave the bags right there you pay with your credit card they could take 40 minutes to get getting up from their chair and going to the food it's I, I think that in um like I honestly don't know where I'm going with this, but just one observation that I'm making is the number of incredibly obese people is gonna like increase, I think, dramatically over the next, you know, even five five, ten years from what it was like, you know, let's say 10, 20 years ago just because of services like Grubhub and Uber Eats now where, you, you know, these people don't even have to walk to their doors to pick up their food, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, it's very, it's very possible. Uh, and on that note, thanks again, everyone for listening to the anonymous investors podcast. I am your co-host Lord edge visited as always by Robert, Robert, my man. You had some words of wisdom that you wanted to share with the crowd. I'll let you get, get to that in a minute. And our special guest today, DDT, go check him out. Good guy. We like him. We'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bing bong. See me. I'm going hard. Bing, 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 bong, bong, bong. Bing, 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 bong, bong, bong. <laughs>